All right, well, let's get into it. So, question for you. Have you ever been involved in the hiring process of trying to hire an employee? Hands up if you've actually been part of that process. Yeah, a few of you. Okay, yeah, I've, I've done that once as well, which was a very interesting experience. One of the things that you will attest to, I am sure, is that in any given job that you're hiring someone, there's always a few good candidates and then there's some really bad candidates. Like there's some people who just, I don't know if they're just applying for everything, but they put it in there and it's like, why are you applying for this job? This is clearly not a good fit. Like, for example, you know, you might be trying to hire a uh, masseuse. So if you were trying to do that, this lady would seem like a good candidate, knows what she's doing, good option. This person, perhaps, maybe not. Not the person you'd be looking to kind of have in that job. Or if you're looking for something sort of like very finicky, um, like watchmaking, this person seems pretty well qualified, knows what he's doing. This guy, um, not sure you necessarily want to have doing that job, bit of a mess. Or if you want a makeup artist, um, she seems, oh, that girl seems very washed out, but that's the, that's, that's the projector, not her. She's doing a fantastic job. This guy, probably not so much. Not the guy you'll be looking for. Other things, maybe, maybe if, you know, you want to rob a bank or something, he's great. What about this guy? What would you hire this guy for? This is Jesus, by the way, just in case you're wondering. What would you hire Jesus to do? I mean, I'm pretty sure there's a few wineries out in the Kumu area that really love to get their hands on this guy, turns water into wine. That's a pretty handy sort of, you know, uh, skill there. You know, feeds the 5,000. I'm pretty sure he's um, in high demand in supermarkets, specifically in the bakery and the seafood section. That's, that's probably easy. I know you'd give him my job in a heartbeat. I'd be, I'd be sent packing. No problems. But would you hire him as your accountant? Would you hire Jesus to be your marketing executive? Or would you hire him perhaps to be your architect? I mean, you know, he built buildings and stuff. Would you hire him to be your lawyer? You see, Christians have this sort of funny habit of saying things like, you should follow Jesus in every area of your life. But isn't Jesus just a religious teacher? I mean, isn't he, he was a rabbi? Isn't, isn't he just like a religious teacher guy? I mean, what would he really have to say about other areas, like real practical areas of my life? Well, it turns out quite a bit, actually. He's, he's, he's quite interested in more than just your Sunday morning worship experiences. He has a lot to say about a lot of different areas in your life. And so we want to kind of have a look for the next little while about some of those things. There's this fantastic little um, example of Jesus' teaching that covers a lot of different areas. Um, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, as Nate said. And it's found in three chapters of Matthew, chapter 5. Yep, five, six, and seven. I know my Bible. Five, six, and seven. So it's quite a, a big chunk um, of, of teaching that Jesus has. Although, to be honest, those three chapters are probably a slimmed-down Cliff Notes versions of the actual sermon that Jesus would have spoken. There's another um, book of the Bible, Luke, which is another story of Jesus' life um, that gives you different snippets of the same teaching. But anyway... This um, sermon on the Sermon on the Mount is quite a famous 
sort of sermon. It's been talked about a lot throughout history. And it made quite an impression on the people who heard it. In fact, you can see at the end of it, um, in Matthew chapter 7, I think, do I have that passage? Yeah, he says, uh, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. So, good sermon. You know, if I got that kind of feedback, that would be great. You know, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, you know, sort of thing. So, um, but what the sermon does is he gives, he gives a great teaching about a lot of spiritual things. You know, how to pray is in there and, and how to connect with God and all of those things you would expect. But he also spends a lot of time talking about other stuff, everyday stuff. And it kind of works as a fun little CV of Jesus' life experiences and his, his job qualifications, if you will. So when we're thinking about, should I follow Jesus' advice in all areas of my life, he's kind of laid out this little CV so we can kind of look into it. Now, let me be clear. Jesus doesn't have to apply or interview for any job in our lives, okay? He's God. He gets to do what he likes, and he's in charge. But he also gives us a sense of choice of whether we will follow him or not. He gives us a brain to think about what he has said and where we have physically the choice of whether we choose to follow what he says or not. And so very helpfully, he's kind of laid out the CV. And so we're going to spend the next seven weeks looking at this. We're going to work through the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. So if you want to read that in between, get a little jump on me um, before next week, you can do that. And so we're going to look at a different series of roles that Jesus can play in our lives. And the first one this week is Jesus the life coach. And so to set the stage a little bit, we've got a little bit of a clip from Yes Man. Um, if you've seen that, there's a great life coach in there. Have a check this out. Have a check this out. Have a look at this. <laughs> Who among you is new? You lost the love of your life because 
She couldn't be with someone who didn't deserve us. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is how a lot of people see church. Like, I'm pretty sure this is what people expect to happen in church. Uh, complete, utter humiliation in front of everybody. We should do that more, right? Okay, maybe not. So I know a couple of life coaches, actual, genuine, real life coaches, and nothing like that. But this is kind of the image we have in our mind, right? When we think of life coach, you know, like self-help guru. Guy's got the, the best-selling books and the massive conferences, and he has all of these cliche-type statements on how to live your life. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a weird sort of thing. But at the heart of it, life coaches are just asking a very simple question, aren't they? How do we live our best lives? How can we find happiness and fulfillment in life? Right? It's a pretty pertinent question. It's a pretty good question. And so it's a pretty fitting way for Jesus to get started on his message talking about fulfillment and happiness in life. After all, Jesus tells us in another place that he comes to give us life, if you see this on the screen. He comes to give us life and life to the full. That's his promise, full life, you know, sort of like a content, happy, complete life. So it's good that he starts out with some self-help, some, some life coaching. Now, if, if we are going to expect Jesus to be a life coach, we would expect him to start saying things like, be confident and be bold, take life by the horns, you know, get out there, push yourself, you deserve to be happy, find what's best for you, find your best life. That's the sort of stuff we would expect from a life coach, a self-help type guru. So let's have a look at what Jesus, the life coach, says. He starts off, he says, well, the Bible says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And okay, this is what he says. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the, those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right. So this section of the sermon and of the Bible is commonly called the Beatitudes. Okay, now Beatitudes is simply a Latin word that means blessed. You can tell why. There's a lot of blessed. Blessed this, blessed that, blessed everything else. And blessed really is just a simple description of someone who is or will be happy or who is fortunate or is to be congratulated. So this really gets to the heart of what we want in life, doesn't it? I want to be happy in life. I want to be fulfilled. I want to be content, truly, deeply happy. This is right up Life Coach Alley. And this is what Jesus says. 
Here's how you be happy. Here's how you find happiness in your life. But it's not really the stuff that we were expecting, is it? It's not really the sort of happy, confident, get out there, live your best life type stuff that we would expect. Instead, it's, it's about meekness and poverty, mourning and, and, and peacefulness and, and persecution. It's not a typical path towards happiness. Now, I want to I kind of highlight a, a few of these Beatitudes that kind of give a sense of the overall picture because we're not going to have time to go through each and every one of them. There's 10 of them, quite a lot. So, um, nine of them, I think. So anyway, there's, a, there's four that I want to kind of have a look that kind of give a really good description. And the first is in verse 3, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I mean, I know what poor is. Uh, and so we kind of get the sense of being poor in spirit is kind of like being humble, you know? And it's kind of like, I'm just kind of lay low a little bit and I'm not going to toot my own horn and I'm not going to, you know, pretend like I've got it all together, but just kind of lay low a little bit. But actually, I think it's a little bit more than that. I think this is a description of spiritual powerlessness. Spiritual powerlessness. It's not just, I need a little help with life type thing, but a complete bankruptness before God. When I go to before God, I have nothing. I am destitute in spirit. I am poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer God in my own strength. And we talked a little bit about this in the last couple of weeks. The interesting thing about this, and there's a, there's a reason why many of the early Christians, most of the early Christians, came from the poorer classes of society, physically poor. Because the people who understood that they had nothing understood this poor in spirit concept. It was those who, who were physically destitute, who really literally were powerless in society. They had nothing to offer. They were reliant on others. They were reliant on the goodwill of other people in order just to survive. They truly understood what it means to rely on God spiritually, which is, of course, not to say that people who had money weren't Christians. But Jesus did say things like, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. And he's talking about this attitude of when we have things, when we are self-reliant, when we, when we know how to take care of ourselves physically. We've got enough to, to feed ourselves, to put a good house on our head. Maybe we would find success financially. And so we can kind of take care of our lives. It's harder for us to grasp our spiritual bankruptness. Now, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's harder. And so we, we, this blessed are the poor in spirit are the ones who truly understand what we have before God, which is nothing. I would say this is something we struggle with. We, we struggle with understanding this, this concept, but happiness comes, and this is maybe a good way of looking at this, happiness comes not when we take control of our lives, God says happiness comes when we let go and we realize 
We need him desperately. That's when true happiness can come through. Not an easy one. <laughs> Not such an easy one. People take the, uh, the Beatitudes, this, this section, as kind of like this really great self-help concept, and they kind of post it on things. Even Gandhi was a big fan of the Sermon on the Mount, and he didn't necessarily believe Jesus was who he says he was. Um, but he's like, oh, this is good. This is really good life skills stuff. But it's actually really hard. It's really hard to truly take on these ideals. Verse 7 jumps in and says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now this is kind of like having a generous attitude. You know, being kind to others, seeing the suffering that other people have and then doing something about it. Now this is kind of a, this is a good thing. I mean, most people in our society would agree with this, right? They would agree that, that when people are suffering, we should help each other. You know, I, I think religious or not, people would jump on board with being kind and being helpful to those who are less fortunate. Yeah? But again, Jesus wants to take it further. See, those who are merciful not only treat others when they are destitute or needing help or thankful to be helped or asking for help. Truly merciful people treat those who hate them well with mercy. Treat those who hurt them with mercy. Treat those who belittle them with mercy and generosity and compassion. So Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter whether they like you or not. You go out and you are merciful. That is the path to, to forgiveness, to being shown mercy, to happiness. This is kind of mercy makes no sense to the world around us. They don't understand why we would continually take punishment from the world and then return it with love and compassion and kindness. They say things like, you're just a doormat. You know, you're just getting pushed over. You just, you know. And so we kind of react to this a little bit by saying, well, we don't want to be a doormat, you know. So we want to stand up for ourselves, but we also want to be merciful. And sometimes we take that so far as to we actually not end up merciful at all. We're no different from the world around us. You know, we're kind to those who are kind to us, and we ignore those who are not kind to us. But Jesus is saying, if you are merciful, you're merciful to everyone. All right, and then verse 8, he says, pure in heart. So this concept of purity, this is not really surprising that Jesus mentions purity or, or moral uprightness, if you will, doing good, uh, doing good things. This is very common in Jesus' day. I mentioned, I think, a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, about this group called the Pharisees, and they were very strict about making sure everything was right. According to the laws that God had given them, they wanted to do everything by the book. That was purity. That was doing the right things. They were good in that sense. But again, Jesus wants to take that a little bit further because these people were doing the right things on the outside, but their hearts were still dark, and their hearts were still cold, and their hearts had no love or compassion. And so Jesus is saying, I don't want you to just be pure outwardly. I want you to be pure in heart. Not just doing the right things, but thinking the right things. Having the right attitudes. Having the right feelings towards each other. And we can't always control our feelings, but we're doing what we can to overcome that, to have control over that. 
Many would argue that um, our culture actually yearns to have its own moral purity. We have a very strong sense in our culture of what is right, what is wrong. But without sort of having a, a God who gives the rules of what is right and wrong, we kind of rely on other values, right? So our culture would say, we don't want to do anything that hurts someone else. Fair enough. Like, we don't want to hurt other people. We don't want to belittle other people. We don't want to disrespect other people. These are good things. But then they would say, if you're doing something that is not hurting or disrespecting or belittling someone else, then you're fine. Do what makes you happy, as long as it's not getting in the way of other people. So we ask the question, does it hurt someone? Does it make someone feel less? Then it's wrong. Otherwise, it's fine. But Jesus asked for a purity of heart that is not asking, does this hurt someone? It doesn't ask, are there consequences for what I'm doing? It asks, is it right? Is it right or is it wrong? Is it what God wants us to do? And that is the basis of which we act. That's our purity. That's where it comes from. And when he says those who are pure in heart, they will see God. This is kind of an interesting play on the Old Testament. So the Pharisees, those people who were trying to do the right things, they believed that if they had everything right, if they were pure in their actions, then they would be good with God. They would have access to God. They would be able to get close to God. And Jesus is saying, no, it's your heart. In fact, Jesus spent a lot of time having a go at the Pharisees about this. And he says, it is your heart. If you are pure in heart, then you will see God. You will be able to get close to God. All right, and then verse 10. This is the, this is the fun. This is, this is the best of the lot. This is what really gets people you know, riled up and ready to go. When he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I like the second part. Can we ditch the first part? Is that okay? Is it wrong to cut that out? It's a real head scratcher. Bad things happen to me, but I'm supposed to be happy about it. But there's actually a little, little catch that we don't often see here. The key to this is, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because of right living, because we follow Jesus, and then we get persecuted, then we are blessed. So um, you can't count it as persecution when you keep getting speeding tickets for speeding. Okay? That is not bad things happening to good people. Okay? You can't count it as persecution if you attack someone with anger and with hatred for their beliefs, and then there's backlash on you. You can't count that as persecution because you haven't acted in the righteous way. But if you try to live out your faith with truth and love, and then you're still beaten back for it, that's persecution. If you get passed over for a job or a promotion because you keep stealing office supplies, that's not persecution. But if you get keeping passed over for a job or you don't get a job because your boss is out against Christians and you're a Christian. That's persecution. And there's blessing in that. Basically, it comes down to this. If you stand your ground in your faith when the world tells you to move and then they hate you for it, that is persecution. And that is a blessing, according to Jesus here. He says, 
if you are punished for doing right, yours is the kingdom of God. You get to win. You get the riches at the end of the rainbow. You get to end your life and be with God, and you are going to have those blessings. God's riches are going to be poured out on you. He's going to make it rain like a bad 90s rap video. It's going to be awesome for you. All right? That's the blessing. All right, so let's see. Let's see what we've got here. We've got powerless. We've got focused on others. We've got goody two-shoes, and we've got thankful for persecution. This is Jesus' formula for happiness. I'm guessing his bestseller book, not a bestseller. (laughs) I'm guessing his conference is not doing so well. Laughed off the stage. That's not self-help, it's self-destruction. So why is it good advice? Why am I saying to you, and yes I am, that you should follow Jesus the life coach? Why Why am I saying that you should buy into his principles? Let me say in answer to that, that the Beatitudes... These blessings only make sense if God truly is real and he is who he says he is. That may seem like a basic idea, but that's the truth. It doesn't make sense, a lot of it, some of it does, but a lot of it doesn't make sense if God isn't real. Being persecuted for standing up for something doesn't make sense if there's no blessing in it. So if God is real then his rewards are real as well. God is who he says he is, and he has the power that he says that he has. Then when he says he's going to bless you, that's a good thing. And it means that he can give us far more joy than we could ever suffer. The balance between joy and suffering is always tipped towards the joy, even if it's delayed. There's a great verse in Romans chapter 8 where the writer says, I consider that our present sufferings, the things that are going wrong because we believe in him, they're not worth comparing with the glory, the good that will be revealed in us. We've got some good stuff coming. The main course tastes horrible. The dessert is going to rock it. Okay? That's the truth if God is real. And if God is real, this is the other thing. If God is real, and we were made to look like him, all right, so we were made to look like God, then an attitude of living our best life, an attitude of doing what is best for us, an attitude that serves ourselves, is actually contrary to how we were made. It is contrary to the way that we are wired. If we look like God, God is others-focused. His creation shows that. His very nature shows that. We were designed to be together, to be for each other, to be sacrificial for each other, to be compassionate towards each other. Have a look at this verse. Verse John says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Because God is love, we are love because we are made in the image of God. We're made to look like Him, to act like Him. So when we take on these beatitudes, these blessings, these sort of countercultural, counter-self ideals, we're actually drawing closer to the true humanity that we were given. 
We are more human in these Beatitudes than if we live for our own ends. And Jesus knows this. So he gives us these, uh, this advice. He gives us these blessings. So yes, I think we should hire Jesus as our life coach. I think it would be fantastic. He has got the path to true happiness, true contentment, true fulfillment in life. All right, let me pray. Lord, I thank you that not only do you have spiritual advice for us, how to understand you, how to understand God, how to worship, how to live right lives, but you are interested in other areas of our lives as well. You're interested in our happiness. You're interested in us finding fulfillment and contentment in life. might be a difficult path to get there, but you know the right way. You know us so well. So help us to have the strength to actually walk that path, to, to live a life of mercy and compassion, of self-sacrifice, a life that acknowledges our weakness and our brokenness before you, but does not hide in shame of that or tries to put on a front like we are smart or, or, or strong or got it all together, but we understand our bankruptness before you. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be bankrupt before you because then you can fill us with so much better stuff. Thank you that this is the path you've given us. Help us as we continue to look through the rest of the sermon you gave on that mountain, some of which is going to be nice to hear and some of which is going to be difficult to hear, but we ask that you give us wisdom and understanding in it. And it's your name we pray. Amen.